This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 11, starting at verse 17 through to 36. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ and the Son of God who is coming into the world. When Jesus said this, she went and called her sister, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. But Jesus had not yet come into the village and was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Come, Lord, and see. Jesus wept, and so the the Jews said, See how he loved him. Our summer series is called Encountering Jesus, and so far we've uh, considered the story of Nathaniel meeting Jesus after the calling of the first disciples, the skepticism of Nathaniel. Uh, remember Nathaniel's the one who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, when he heard that uh, these followers had thought they'd found the Messiah. Uh, we then considered the story of the wedding feast, Jesus turning water into wine, and uh, in, in light of that, considered the expectations of Jesus then and now. Uh, what were uh, Jesus' mother's expectation of him when she came to him and said, uh, there seems to be a problem, they've run out of wine. We considered what Jesus was to do as a Messiah and how, and that he uh, performed this miracle to keep a party going, but uh, also that during this time of celebration, he was still focused on his sacrifice and death saying things like, uh, my hour has not yet come. Today, a simple story that many people know, if you've been in or around uh, Christian church for any period of time in your life, you have heard of the story of Lazarus. It's actually a simple story in its, its narrative, in its form. Uh, Jennifer read most of it for us, or much of it. It takes up a lot of John chapter 11 and even into John chapter 12. And most stories in scripture don't take up that much time. 
I'll give you a clue of how I'm going to preach through this text right now in telling you that the text actually doesn't spend a lot of time with uh, Lazarus actually raising from the dead. There's emphasis placed, but that's not it uh, where the emphasis is. It doesn't shy away from talking about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb, but it, uh, it doesn't uh, basically give a lot of press to that like we would maybe do and maybe still do. The story reveals for us that Jesus is, in the words of Jean Vanier on this text, Jesus is profoundly human and totally divine. Now, what you want to do as you read Scripture is to come to Scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind, your eyes, your heart. That's how Jean Vanier gets to say something like this. For him, as he reads this story, he is confronted with this truth. He sees in this story the profound humanity of Jesus Christ and the total divinity of Jesus Christ. We will, in considering this story, know true life. And that true life consists not only in the fact that Lazarus is raised from death to life, but true life consists in the fact that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. There's no part of this and part of that. That's the human mind, the, the, the fallen mind that thinks, well, we, you, know, you, can, you can have too much love or too much justice as if you have to balance the two out. You may have heard this in church circles and other places. There needs to be a balance. Well, there's no balance in terms of Jesus Christ's humanity and divinity because he's 100% of both. It's uh, off that idea of, you know, taking pieces out of one or the other. Never has anyone shown us what it is to be human more than Jesus Christ. Now, I use that term differently than we sometimes use it when we say, well, you can't expect very much. After all, I'm only human. And that's an appropriate way to use the word, but it's not the way the word is being used as we say Jesus is fully human. When we say Jesus is fully human, that's picking up language from Scripture where Jesus often refers to himself and other parts of Scripture refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. Fully human means Jesus shows us what it is like, supposed to be like to be human. But he is fully human and fully divine. Never has anyone been more human in this larger sense of the word, but never has anyone been more divine. Jesus is not simply like God. Jesus is God. Now, those are theological points to talk about, and you can unpack them and understand them, and it's nice and cool in here on a hot July day, but it's still summertime, so people are like, oh, well, at the best of times, people tend to be, oh, theology. Uh, But to really understand these points, fully human and fully divine, listen to the story of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And let the Holy Spirit speak to you. The story of Lazarus, the details. You read John chapter 11, and you're told there was this man that Jesus knew, Lazarus, and he was ill. He was the brother of Mary and Martha, and they send word to Jesus, saying, we are afraid that our brother will die. And Jesus says, this is before the part that Jennifer read, This sickness is not unto death, but Jesus stays where he is for two more days, does not go to the tomb initially, and Lazarus, or does not go to to Lazarus initially, and in that time Lazarus dies. Jesus knows this if you read the text. 
and he makes his way to be with Mary and Martha. When he arrives, because uh, you pick up these little things in the text as well, Bethany was close to Jerusalem, just about two miles away. So you see what's happened in the time since where our cities just swallow up all the suburbs around. But in that time, when, when the prime mode of transportation was walking, a, a village two miles from another place was quite, was quite a distance. Close, but uh, by the time Jesus got to, uh, to the tomb of Lazarus, it had been four days since he had been laid in the tomb. Jesus, we're told, is going to console Mary and Martha. Martha meets him still some way off, and she says this thing. Now, I don't know if you'll... Actually, you'll understand this, because some of you are much more ridden with guilt than I am. Uh, but I understand this from the perspective of a minister, um, and, uh, and I also understand it from the perspective, I think, of just a, a, an everyday person, like someone who it, it isn't attached to my job. Uh, what I'm saying is that we all can feel that sense of uh, the, the weight when you hear something like Martha says. If you had not been here, such and such, or if you had been here, this thing wouldn't have happened. If only you had done this. For some of you, that's what motivates or at least a piece of what motivates your good behavior, is you don't want to hear somebody say, if only you had done such and such. We wouldn't be faced with this problem. Jesus doesn't seem to be put off by Martha's statement when Martha says, if only you had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. He doesn't say, oh, Martha, it's not that simple. Or, why are you putting this on me? He says, your brother will rise again. He continues, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. What does that mean? That we won't die? Physically? Well, it can't be what it means. Or if it is, Jesus is somewhat deluded at this point. Martha calls Mary, who has not spoken to Jesus to this point, and Mary comes to see Jesus. And Martha says the same thing, or sorry, Mary says the same thing as Martha had. If only you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. But the text focuses on something else other than this, you know, if, if it wasn't, if you had been present, then we wouldn't have this problem. What the text focuses on is that as Mary says this, Jesus observes something about Mary. He sees that she's weeping. And then the text, John tells us in his writing, that at this observation, Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled. There's a lot of translation points in this text that uh, the ESV, even the NIV does this. Uh, they make the emotion a little more, uh, a little more clear lines or a little more comfy than, than it actually is in the original language. When, when it uses words like Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled, uh, there's, a, there's a deep, deep emotional content to the words in the original language that don't necessarily carry over in English. Jesus was taken aback. Jesus was consumed with emotion. He was caught up. In verse 38, he's deeply moved again. I'll emphasize that verse in just a few minutes. And then Jesus says, Take away the stone. 
He's behind a tomb and a stone is rolled away. You have to keep listening to texts, right? You listen to one story with the other stories and you listen to the whole of Scripture with the identity and mission of Jesus Christ. I've told you before that I've been in, I was in a conference once where there was an Old Testament text that was very troubling, seemed to be quite, um, if, if misunderstood, a little bit hateful towards other people. And, of course, we know Jesus Christ said, love even your enemies. And in this conference, there, I, it was these two texts, an Old Testament text and this thing with Jesus. And, and one of the presenters said, well, we have the Jesus stuff, sure, but we also have this and we have to kind of balance them out to get to the meaning. And I thought, oh, no, no, you don't balance out Scripture. You interpret everything from, from the example, identity, and mission of Jesus Christ and back into these other texts. So as this stone is rolled away, do you hear the story? What's the tomb where the stone is rolled away? And what did Jesus know in this moment that we don't pick up in the text? What was in his mind, his heart? How many tombs have had stones rolled away and people come out of them? I mean, in some ways, the answer is one. Two, but one. And which one would be in Jesus' mind as he's caring for this family and for his friend? The stone is rolled away and Jesus says, well, first off, one of the sisters says, you know, we shouldn't really roll the stone away because he's been dead for quite a while and it's going to really smell. This, this story is very earthy and real. But there's this miracle. Jesus is not put off by this. And as the stone is rolled away, he says, Lazarus, come out and Lazarus emerges walking out still with the burial cloths over him. Well, what are we to make of this story? What stands out? I mean, what stands out is that there was a dead man who isn't dead anymore. What are you going to make of that? I have one answer for you. Faith. If you have faith, you can believe that God can do anything and turn dead things back to life. You will begin to understand that he has in your faith done that for you. Taken a dead thing and brought it back to life. But if you don't have faith, I understand that this story sounds fantastical. Far-fetched. So is it the resurrection of Lazarus that stands out? Is it the miracle? I told you already that this in the text is not where the emphasis lies. The emphasis in the text lies simply on this. The love and emotion of Jesus Christ in the scene. That's where, the, that's where John puts his emphasis in the writing of this scene. Over and over again, we hear of the emotion and love of Jesus Christ who raises Lazarus. He is deeply moved. He loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in verse 35, now, the, the, you know, verse numbers and chapter numbers are not in the original manuscripts of our scripture. These aren't things that are noted as kind of divinely inspired, at least not in the way that scripture is. They're ways that we divide scripture to, to understand and remember. But those who did divide up the scriptures in this story give us, in, in English at least, 
what has become known as the shortest verse in all of Scripture. And I love that it could be memorable that way. And you know what it is. Verse 35, John eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept. There's the emphasis. It's pretty amazing that Lazarus raised from the dead. But John wants us to know what's more amazing is that, that the one who was fully divine was caught up in love and emotion over the death of a friend and the grief of this family. It's emphasized in verse 38, which is translated in the ESV, I can't remember what the NIV is, as deeply moved. Jesus was deeply moved. The original language here, the Greek, means more than Jesus was kind of uh, really emotional and he felt sorry for the family. It was much bigger than that. The word in Greek means that Jesus was literally shaken. He was caught right up. And it's not only that he was sad. There is in this word uh, more than a hint, a direct um, inference, a direct inference. There's, there's direct understanding that he's not just caught up and shaken, but he, that he is upset. There's some kind of anger in this emotion. Jesus is literally shaking before the tomb of Lazarus. The word that in one of the commentaries that I was reading said, he's bellowing with anger. He stands before the death of a friend and is caught up saying in this emotion, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. He's aware of the darkness and death. Jesus sees human pain and weakness and death, and he rails against it. He enters into the darkness, so much so that he is shaking in this moment. This is potentially troubling, but comforting as well to those who have stood by the side of a bed of a loved one who's dying. Or face such darkness in your life that you can't imagine that there will, be ever, there will ever be light again? Jesus entered that darkness. And he did on this occasion. He rails against the darkness, but he will defeat it. Jesus, in taking this emotion on, is fully human. Human vulnerability, human emotion, human anger... And as I said, what this means for me and for you, and these aren't words that are trite, you know them in the Holy Spirit, what this means for you is that you, even in your deepest grief, are not alone. God does not remain far off. In the Christmas story, you know the name, Emmanuel, God with us. You shall call him God with us. And you have this nice picture of baby Jesus in the manger or the children's play. How about when you, and I'm not saying you should erase that, that image, but maybe add to it when you hear Emmanuel, God with us, the picture of the man Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus, overcome with grief. God with us. It's an important Christian teaching 
incarnation. God become flesh. God among us. John starts this gospel with the prologue. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, you can say that theologically like John does at the beginning of of this book, but you can also say it in narrative like John draws at the tomb of Lazarus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is what it looked like. How might that change your praying? To know this, that he knows your pain. He knows your longing. He knows the sin and pain of the world. Jesus is fully human. But he's also fully divine as demonstrated in this story. In this scene, Jesus has authority. And authority uh, means always scripturally more than, you know, uh, the, the teacher of a classroom. You can have official authority, be in charge of something. But some, some leaders, teachers, others who are given places of authority don't necessarily convey authority. Jesus has actual authority over even death in this scene. It's not just official. It's not just given to him by title. It works out in this scene. He has sovereignty over the grave. I thought of the old spiritual song, there ain't no grave going to hold his body down or anybody that he chooses. So the question comes up then, and some of you would feel this facing your own times of loss. Why doesn't he do for everyone what he did for Martha and Mary and directly for Lazarus? Why didn't he open up a physical resurrection business in the day back there? Shouldn't he have just, just kept doing this? If you can do, and why, doesn't, why don't more people seem to ask? It seems to be noted, even at the time, that this is exceptional. That this is not what Jesus came to do on this earth, to raise physical bodies from the dead and prolong life. Lazarus eventually died and stayed dead. Physically. Why doesn't he do this for everyone? What's the purpose of what he did here? His prayer points to the purpose. Before he says Lazarus come forth, he prays. And he prays this. To to his heavenly father. I pray that they might believe. See how much bigger that is than just this physical resurrection? I pray that they might believe and see, seeing that Jesus Christ is over even death. But he didn't open a physical resurrection business. So when he said, if you believe in me, you will not die, what might he have meant? If you believe in me, though you die, so it seems like you will physically die, yet shall you live. Life in this text is bigger than the physical resurrection of Lazarus. It's possible, I suppose, that Lazarus could be raised from the dead, but still not truly live in the way that Jesus Christ was talking about and praying about. That life in God, in Jesus Christ, is more than our physical life. Jesus brings Lazarus back from the darkness of death, But he himself will willingly take on death and sin and pain. The quote is there. He did not come with a sword in his hands. He came with nails in his hands 
He did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. And this is how far he will go with us. To the grave and beyond the grave. I am the resurrection and the life, he says to uh, Martha. Do you believe? And obviously the question is put before us. Do you believe that life is found in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that this is life even beyond the grave? The question is right there in the text for you and for everyone who is listening. The emphasis is not on that this man was physically dead. It is now physically alive. The emphasis is on the love of Jesus Christ and this question. Do you believe that life is found in him? I say, and I say this as invitation, not condemnation of anybody else. Do you believe that that life is found in Jesus Christ? And I say by faith, yes, I do. In fact, I know it. Here is where my faith lies. And it is faith. And so I always have a deep respect for my non-Christian friends who I think they sometimes must look at me, maybe more than sometimes, and think, he believes crazy stuff. If they even think that deep. Maybe sometimes, you know, I don't mean they can't think deeply, but I just mean oftentimes non-religious people think that religious people are more about rules and stuff. Those who know me tend to know that's not the case. But if they knew what I actually believed, would they just go, "That you believe that? And I, my respect for them would be not to try to force anything, but simply to say, oh, yes, I do. But it's faith. In the end, Lazarus seems like rather a bit player in the scene. I mean, if anybody's watched any of the British Open golf this weekend, they interview everybody about everything, particularly when they have like 13-hour wind delays because it's Scotland. And the ball is on the green and it moves just... Like it's like a Harry Potter scene. Something's happening. And they interview the groundskeeper, who, if, if they can understand the, the, the language and such. Um, they interview this person. They interview that person. Nobody interviewed Lazarus. He doesn't even have a word to say. The first question would be this. What was it like to be dead? But there's nothing. He's a bit player. I mean, now at least he'd have a book, maybe a ghostwriter, a tour for the book, and definitely a reality show. You know, what it's like, did he, would he, have, did he have kids after this? And what kind of things can you threaten your kid with when you've come back from the dead? <laughs> you better obey me. What can I take from the fact that Lazarus is not focused on in this story? Well, oddly enough, I take comfort and encouragement. The story isn't about this, just this physical resurrection. The story is about the life that is found in Jesus Christ. And for us, then, the call is this. He's fully human, he's fully divine, that we could know what it means to be fully alive. And what it means to be fully alive is not that you, that there is, a, that there is no suffering or, or death or loss or pain or sorrow or or even depression, anxiety, all the things that can mean, can can uh, point to what it's what it actually means to be a, a human. And now I am using it in the way of only human. 
but that even in the midst of the struggles and difficulty of life, difficulties of life, we can be fully alive because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We know that He is fully human and fully divine. May I have ears to hear. There are a couple of other curious notes in this story. I Now I'll use the word again in the, in the small H way. Well, they're only human. The responses show that people are only human. After this, of course, what kind of press would happen? Uh, we're entering in the United States. Actually, in Canada, too. What am I saying? We're going to have two fall elections, one uh, north of the border and one south of the border, and there'll be uh, debates. There'll be debates for potential prime ministers and debates for potential presidents. And what's important in a debate? Well, certainly what happens on the stage during the debate, but way more than that, how the press and other people spin it afterwards. Who won? And the question now is, how are people going to spin the resurrection of Lazarus? Well, the text includes some of it in John chapter 11 and later in John chapter 12. Uh, Basically, what happens is some people, because of this, believed. In other words, the actual miracle made them think, who is this Jesus? And they put their faith in him. But right after that, it's not even the end of a sentence in, in some texts, in some translations. It says, so some believed, but some went and told the, the opponents of Jesus Christ, the religious authorities, and they said, look, you know, this has just happened. And the religious authorities said, okay, we, well, first of all, actually, the religious authorities said, oh, no, our opponent raises dead people. It's over for us until one of their leaders who becomes high priest and is also present uh, later at Jesus' trial, so-called, Caiaphas says, it's like he walks in the room as all these other leaders are freaking out, and he says, what are you guys on about? I mean, yes, he'll upset everything that we know, and we've got people under control religiously, and things seem to be pretty good. They're protectors of the status quo. Religious people often are protectors of the status quo. And he says, look, It's more important to keep things together, so shouldn't we just kill one guy to protect everybody else? That's how they tell themselves that they're doing the right thing. Just Let's just kill this Jesus fellow because he's really going to upset stuff. And they begin, after the resurrection of Lazarus, they begin to plot the death of Jesus. That's what the text says. Later on, and this is so small h, human, it's the dumbest plan I've ever heard of later on. First of all, trying to kill the Messiah is a dumb plan. But anyway, we don't know our own stupidity when we're caught up in it. But later on, it gets even dumber in that they say, well, you know, Lazarus, he might do a tour, a book tour or whatever. So they actually have a plot to kill Lazarus. I mean, if you carry these things beyond the text, you can say, would there be a battle? They kill Lazarus. Jesus raises him from the dead again. Well, thankfully, Scripture doesn't get into that kind of game. But these are the responses. Faith on the part of some. Faith in Jesus Christ and belief. You put your faith in Him or you reject this. But even then... Even for people who witnessed this miracle, it was possible to reject Jesus Christ. And you think to yourself, if only my children, or if only my loved ones, or if only other people could know the power of Jesus Christ, then they would say yes. Maybe. But in this story, not necessarily. 
Or you can, you can write it another way and say, even though they, they, they were confronted with it, they didn't truly see the power of Jesus Christ. So for us, what are we to do? Well, I mean, it's the call for me, and I, I believe it's the call for you as well, particularly if you haven't ever put your faith in Jesus Christ. But I do mean it's the call for all of us in this place. What are we to do? And the answer simply is, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. The author of salvation. Fully human, fully divine. I want to end with a poem. Last Sunday night, um, I had the privilege of going out and hearing Steve Bell, a Christian musician, and and a guy named Pierce Pettis, who I hadn't heard before, who was incredible, and a poet named Malcolm Geit, who was actually um, was on staff and is chaplain at Cambridge in England. And uh, there were only like 30 people in this tight little room. They, both uh, Steve Bell and Malcolm Geit were going to teach a course all week at Regent. And uh, it's only because I know some people who put these kinds of things together. But I was uh, privileged to go up. Malcolm Geit looks like a make another Harry Potter reference. He looks like a Harry Potter character. If you look up right now on your phone, Malcolm Geit, G-U-I-T-E. He's got a big, long beard, pictures of him. He's got a pipe. Um, he, and he read some poetry out there, and these other guys played music. This is one of the poems that he read, and it fit perfectly for me, and I think for you, in the story of Lazarus, particularly as we consider the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you, and I'll use it to move us to the communion. What he's doing is he's taking the the concepts of of divinity as we know it, as we understand it apart from Jesus, like God is way up there and God is powerful who's going to strike people down, all these distant kind of conceptions of God, and he's saying Jesus wasn't like that. So he's using fully, fully divine and fully human. I'll read it for you. He was so much better at reading it, and he looked way cooler and more poetic than me. But anyway, because he leaned forward like this. And he was one of these guys who could read, a, like, like I felt like a child again, but not pedantic. I didn't feel immature. I just felt caught up. He wrote it. He read it. They sought to soar into the skies, those classic gods of high renown. For lofty pride aspires to rise. But you came down. I won't stop every stanza, don't worry. But when I heard this poem the first time, because I just heard it, I didn't see it on the page. And when he got to those words, but you came down, I realized, oh, it's a prayer. You dropped down from the mountain sheer, forsook the eagle for the dove. The other gods demanded fear, but you gave love. Where chiseled marble seemed to freeze their abstract and perfected form compassion brought you to your knees your blood was warm they called for blood in sacrifice their victims on the altar bled when no one else could pay the price you died instead they towered above our mortal plane dismissed this restless flesh with scorn Aloof from birth and death and pain. But you were born. Born to these burdens, born by all. Born with us all astride the grave. Weak to be with us when we fall. 
and strong to save. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we turn to the communion, may we know that it is both in this bread, when you broke the bread, this is my body broken for you. When you took the cup, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. Both weak, you became obedient even to death on a cross. How much weaker, how much more human. But in this bread and cup, we know as well, strong to save. May we trust not even in the resurrection of Lazarus, not even in this miracle that for us still remains miraculous and assaults our sensibilities, but may we trust in your death and resurrection. We pray in your name. Amen.